You're listening to Over the Top, a great war podcast. In Flanders fields the poppies blow Between the crosses, row on row That mark our place And in the sky the larks Still bravely singing Fly, scarce heard amid the guns below We are the dead Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe, to you from failing hands we throw the torch, be yours to hold it high, if ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep. Though poppies grow in Flanders fields. Welcome back for episode 21. That was a famous poem titled In Flanders Fields, written on May 3rd, 1915, by Lieutenant Colonel John Alexander McRae, a Canadian poet and physician who served in Ypres as a surgeon. But I'll be getting more into McRae at the end of this episode. So, how's everyone doing? I hope everyone is doing great and in good health. As for myself, I'm feeling great. I'll say I'm just about back to 100%, and I'm very thankful for that. On the last episode, I discussed Britain and France pushing for the Dardanelles Straits to be conquered and move into Constantinople. The fleet was led by Admiral John de Robeck under extreme pressure from Winston Churchill. But the assault didn't go as planned. The Allies lost two ships, two more badly damaged, and hundreds of seamen dead. They underestimated the Ottoman Empire's ability to put up a fight against such a mighty fleet of ships. And when I say mighty, I mean this was the cream of the crop of battleships back then, especially with the new era of dreadnoughts such as the mighty HMS Queen Elizabeth. The Turks fought back. They fired heavy guns from forts which were lined along the Europe and Asia side of the Dardanelles. They also had mobile howitzers firing a volley of artillery, then would move to other locations so the Allied planes couldn't relay the correct positions to the ships. Plus, let's not forget about sea mines. Those nasty little steel boogers that littered the ocean where the Allies were trying to push their fleet through. These steel balls packed a powerful explosion that could produce catastrophic damage. You combine these three elements together, you now have the ability to fight back even against the bigger opponents on the field of battle, or in this case, the sea of battle. The Allies had to find out the hard way that the Turks weren't just going to give up without a fight. March did not go as planned for the Allies at the Dardanelles. And when I first spoke of the Dardanelles campaign, or the Gallipoli campaign as some like to call it, I said it was long, almost a year long. And yes, I could have summed it up in one episode, but where's the fun in that when you have a Great War podcast? I'd rather take my time and go into detail about the historical events and battles people want to hear. But the Dardanelles isn't what this episode is going to be about. This episode is going back to the Western Front, to the small town of Ypres, and it's going to get really dark. But before I get into that, I'd like to update you on a few other events that took place in April of 1915. 
Leaders in the East were pleased with their army's recent achievements by crushing the Austro-Hungarians at Galicia and the Carpathians, the same offensive that led to them taking Przemysl. And they continued to make headway despite lingering cold weather the winter had left in its rear, and the shortage of ammunition and weapons. Galicia was considered so secure by the Cossacks that the Tsar himself decided to pay the city of Lemberg a visit. Tsar Nicholas slept in a suite that until then was strictly only used by Emperor Franz Joseph. The Tsar was now sleeping in Franz Joseph's bed. By himself, of course. Late spring was setting the stage for a major assault by the Russians beyond the Carpathians. The Austrians didn't have much confidence they could hold off another major assault. Austrian General Konrad von Holzendorf believed his army was on the verge of collapse and was practically begging the Germans for more help. Falkenhayn believed the British and the French would continue their attacks and that the fate of this war would be decided on the Western Front. Because of this, he was hesitant to send more troops to the East. Falk was also waiting to see what Italy was going to do. His hopes was for a triple alliance, Italy, Austria-Hungary, and the Germans. But Falk eventually gave into the, into the demands for more troops in the East. Russia by now believed they were the big man on campus, an unstoppable force, and were no longer interested in sharing any of their post-war acquisitions just to bring in Italy to the side of the Allies. They were also successful against the Turks in the Caucasus, which now made the Dardanelles campaign seem unimportant to them. All they cared about in that matter was getting a piece of Constantinople when the time came. Rome had managed to stay out of the war up to now, and to Foreign Minister Antonio di San Giuliano, could there be anything more Italian than that name? Well, yes, because his full name was Antonino Boterno Castello Marchese di San Giuliano. Giuliano! <laughs> Antonio was more than happy to keep Italy out of the war. He wanted nothing to do with it. He believed Austria's behavior towards Serbia was provocative and that both Germany and Austria violated the terms of the alliance, which in turn relieved Italy from any obligation to join the war. Problem was, Antonio died in 1914, leaving foreign affairs to Prime Minister and future fascist Antonio Salandra. And Salandra was on the other side of the fence regarding the war. He viewed it as a way to negotiate Italy with the highest bidder. I two three 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 bit of four six bit of four now four now five bit of five bit of five now four 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 now has eighty four four now five 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 eighty five five but have but have but be five now. Now, it sounds funny, and I promise you this will be the only funny part about this episode. But this is really what Salandra did. He pimped out Italy. He played both sides to get the best price for Italy's side in the war. Now, Salandra had claimed to have a ready army of a million men or close to it. So what do you think the Allies and the Central Powers did? Yes, they began an intense bidding war. Each side could use the men from a ready army at this point, and some generals believed that whichever side Italy chose would be the side that wins the war. The negotiations and bidding would go on all through spring. On the French side, Joffre launched his Pailus into an offensive on April 5th at the Saint-Michel salient just south of Verdun. 14 French divisions, along with 360 heavy guns, attacked the Huns on a 50-mile wide front. On the day of the attack, 
The weather and terrain couldn't have been any worse for the soldiers. The ground was muddy, the visibility was blocked by fog, then came the rain, and that really sucks. But the 14th French Division had a problem, an even bigger problem than the crappy weather conditions. French operational security was a bit too relaxed at that time. French officers were heard by spies talking of the coming attack at cafes in Paris, and even in towns close to Verdun, they were overheard talking about it. The Germans received the warning, they took it seriously, and they prepared. And per, per typical Western style of fighting, this attack led to a failed assault, mass casualties, and more blood that fed the earth. French soldiers that had moved up on the northern side were absolutely slaughtered, obliterated. They were grounded up like chuck meat by German machine guns and artillery. After the battle, Joffre eventually allowed this to be called the Battle of Vouvray, and it cost him over 62,000 men. And just like typical Joffre, he felt his army was so close to gaining ground, he immediately got to work on an even bigger assault. Alright, now let me talk about Ypres. And why am I going back to Ypres for this episode? It's because on the 22nd of April 1915, an unthinkable act of warfare was unleashed. A despicable display of morals. An act that showed complete and utter disregard for human life. An act that kicked off the Second Battle of Ypres. Now, some of you might be saying, can this war get any worse? How can it get any worse? The casualty rate is already in the millions. Some men at this point were already returning home with missing limbs, disfigured, grotesque faces, some missing their jaws, some missing half their face. They were showing the world they knew before this war started, the world that was so eager to send their boys off to the glory of war, what can really happen? Needless to say, shock set in. This isn't the first time in history where humans have showed complete disregard for other human lives to gain either power, land, or money. Genghis Khan's army murdered, pillaged, and raped millions of people in his conquest to rule the world just as Attila the Hun did. Vlad the Impaler went to great lengths to instill fear in his enemies by impaling human bodies on stakes along with decapitating heads and planting them on spikes too. The Nazi extermination of the Jews, the invention and use of the atomic bomb, how about Imperial Japan's mass murder and rape of Nanking, the Khmer Rouge genocide, the genocides in Africa, and sadly, if you went down that line of history, you'll find many more dark events where humans showed little to no regard for other humans. April 22nd, 1915 was surely one of those dark times in human history. It'll reshape the way this war would be fought right up until the end. In fact, it'll reshape the way war is fought up to today. I've said this multiple times and I'll keep saying it. If you want to understand the world we live in today and why it's so fucked up, excuse my language, but you need to understand the great war first. The aftermath of the war explains a lot. Frustrations were growing on both sides of the trenches from not being able to push their line forward. Generals and supposed leaders were becoming desperate. They would do anything to have their army gain ground at this point. There was also a shell shortage on the fronts, which was becoming a serious issue. While trying to brainstorm ideas for this problem, in January 1915, 
Fritz Habe, the director of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Physical Chemistry in Berlin, came up with a sickening idea. He suggested the use of chemical weapons to Erich von Falkenhayn. He proposed filling cylinders with liquid chlorine, which being used as a vaporized gas, could be released as clouds and with the right wind at their backs would carry deadly smoke onto their enemy. Haba, being a chemist, had to have known that when chlorine combines with water, it forms into hydrochloric acid. Well, the human body is 80% water. This would have a lethal effect on the lungs, eyes, and mucous membrane. Not only would the eyes begin to burn badly, a person who breathed the gas would quickly start to choke and drown from toxic fluid filling the lungs. A death that would be extremely agonizing. Also, Flanders is a wet place. Naturally, with the season, it had been raining on and off, filling shell holes with water. It was also filling the trenches. And once the gas hits a place like flooded trenches and water-filled shell holes, the water and ground would then become toxic from the gas. Add this in with the dead rotting bodies, rats eating the corpses, urine and fecal matter just marinating. Let's just say the water was not safe to drink around the trenches. A desperate Falkenhayn immediately approved Haber's trial for a new weapon, eventually ordering the production of thousands of cylinders and named it Operation Disinfection. The term disinfection is known today as cleaning something to remove any harmful bacteria. Falkenhayn meant it in the term of exterminating human lives. We exterminate rodents and bugs from certain areas which we don't think they belong, like our homes, gardens, crops, or just out of fear. Haber created a weapon to exterminate human beings in the cruelest fashion. Falkenhayn viewed enemy soldiers as if they were rodents and bugs and had no problem approving gas as a solution to this problem. Even Fritz was hospitalized by gas after riding into some unseen cloud at training grounds in Belgium on the 2nd of April. This proved he was aware of the effects the gas had before the 22nd of April. But men like Fritz Haber aren't rational. They don't view morals and ethics as a priority. They don't carry the compassionate gene. They feel no guilt. So it's of no surprise he went forward with the plan. The first 6,000 cylinders that were ordered to be produced held 88 pounds of liquid chlorine. And this was followed by another order of 24,000 smaller cylinders, each holding 44 pounds of liquid. The first cylinders were completed on March 10th and each weighed 187 pounds full. General von Diemling of the 15th Corps was told that he would oversee the first attack. But Diemling had these so-called moral objections using poisonous gas. He later regarded the attack saying, quote, The mission of poisoning the enemy as one would rats affected me as it would any straightforward soldier. I was disgusted. End quote. His view on how wrong gassing soldiers was must have gotten thrown out the window because soon after, Diemling was convinced by other German generals, those like Falk, that this gas attack would bring about the fall of Ypres. Then this could perhaps be the victory that could decide the war. Diemling then agreed that the use of gas was critical for the war effort. Crown Prince Ruprecht, the last the heir to the Bavarian throne, commander of the 6th German army in 1915, told Falkenhayn and Haber that he found this new weapon personally distasteful and warned them that if they went through with this, 
the Western Allies would certainly use it right back against their army. Duke Albrecht, commander of the 4th German Army, was assigned the task by Falkenhayn with finding the location to place the first 6,000 cylinders in Ypres. He first placed them on the southern face of the salient, but because of wind issues, they moved them to the northern part of Ypres, opposite Langemart. There was also a special task force in charge of handling, transporting, and releasing the gas cylinders. They were referred to as pioneers. Imagine the situation. You're hauling chemical cylinders filled with death on a front line that was constantly being shelled by artillery. It was constantly littered with machine gun and rifle rounds racing through the air. The pioneers nerves no doubt were being tested along with the regular soldiers manning the front who all of a sudden have these cylinders placed alongside them. None of the soldiers wanted the cylinders near them in fear they would go off or be hit by a round. There's something important to point out that I believe everyone should know about the gas attack. There were warning signs prior to April 22nd. The British had reported they had taken a German officer prisoner after a trench raid near Zillebeke, and that the officer revealed the plan for an upcoming gas attack and that his patrol came upon the cylinders in place ready to be used with special soldiers trained to release the gas manning them. The problem with this report was, it didn't get reported until about 18 years later by the British press after they were told of the story. A little too late, my friends. The French 10th Army also reported prisoners talking about an upcoming gas attack and special stink pioneers who were trained to release the gas. But these reports were coming about as the French were handing their trenches over to the British, and lo and behold, the report got lost in translation. Here's a better one for you. On April 9th, the Times put together a short report with a heading that read, A New German Weapon, Poisonous Gas for Our Troops. It was made up of warnings from prisoners of war which said, They propose to asphyxiate our men if they advance by means of poisonous gas. Yet nobody felt the need to take these reports serious. How the Times received these reports of these prisoners was suspicious. Could have been a tip-off, we'll never know. And just like many other warnings in our history, it got brushed under the rug, letting the inevitable acts of violence unfold. Oh wait, I have another one which is even better. On April 13th, a German deserter brought a much more specific warning. Private August Jaeger of the 234th Reserve Infantry Regiment had been an officer's chauffeur but became disgruntled and crossed over into the French line. Soldiers deserting was actually common and continued through the rest of the war. And I'm not saying this is right. I don't support deserters or people who go AWOL. I'm just relaying historical facts. Well, this soldier gave the French valuable intelligence like trench routines, artillery and rest camp locations, and even officer houses. He also gave a detailed description of an upcoming gas attack which included the signal to release the gas and masks his fellow Huns were going to use to protect themselves. It was even reported he had a respirator on him. Respirators were used at the beginning. They came from miners. They were given to higher up officers and certain individuals like a machine gunner and an officer's chauffeur. It's very possible Jaeger could have had one. One French divisional commander named Edmund Ferry took this warning seriously. 
He immediately warned the British and Canadians to his right flank and began to thin out his frontline troops to limit the casualty count. But he did replace a lot of them with colonial and territorial soldiers. Ferry informed Henry Poots, the French army commander, regarding the report he received. Poots believed Jaeger was sent over to spread propaganda, believing it would thin out the front lines. Nonetheless, Poots passed the news to the King of Belgium, General Foch, and the French general headquarters. But again, nothing was done. Nobody acted on it. Sometimes the world seems too scripted. How can history continually repeat itself and we don't learn from it? Again, if you go down that dark line in history, how many times people were warned before a horrible event unfolded, but people just turned their backs and let it go on? Why is this? Is it inevitable these things will happen and it's impossible to stop them? Or are we a species that thrives off catastrophic events? Does terrible acts of violence fuel us? Either way, it's disturbing, and I don't think the world is ready, nor does it care to find the answer to that right now. Several days before the 22nd of April, there was extreme fighting going on in Ypres at a location called Hill 60, the highest point along the Messinas Ridge that overlooked the town of Ypres, which is also why the sides fought so hard for it. Hill 60 is in a natural formation. It's a man-made high ground created from removed earth after building a railway which was formed into this hill. A little side note, if you ever visit or if you have visited Hill 60, there's a small concrete bunker that's badly damaged. You can't miss it. It's not a big bunker. You'd have to be a really small person to crawl inside. And even then, I'm, I'm not sure it's possible. It's heavily damaged. The bunker was erected later in the war. However, the main damage you visibly see today came from the battles during the Second World War. Just wanted to throw that tidbit of information out. It's history, and I like history. The Germans had taken Hill 60 from the French in December of 1914, and now the British decided they needed to take this from the Germans. Weeks before the fight for Hill 60 kicked off, British miners were operating under the earth, digging a tunnel from behind their line into German territory, right underneath the hill. Once they dug to their destination, the miners, or better known as tunnelers, created a chamber and packed it with explosives. The tunnelers detonated the chamber at 7 p.m. on the 17th of April. A massive explosion threw most of the hill hundreds of feet into the air, along with many Germans and their equipment. It was reported that a thousand men died instantly, but who really knows the actual number? Many were buried for good or blown to pieces. A thousand seems like a generic number to me. But nonetheless, this is what kicked off the attack on Hill 60, but not to be confused with the Second Battle of Ypres. I'm going to put a link on my social media and onto this episode's description. It's a quick YouTube video of a couple walking Hill 60. There's one particular part to watch for. You'll see the trench line from December of 1914. It's, it's about a minute into the video, but the video is only a few minutes long, so, so just watch the whole thing. You're going to see how close the opposing trench lines were. I visited Hill 60 in October of, I believe it was 2018, and this is what stood out to me the most. The trench line between the German and French is seriously only a stone throw away. 
maybe about the length of four cars. It really blew me away. I knew they ran close to each other, but when you see it in person, it's shocking. At least it was for me. Between April 17th and the 21st, fierce fighting went on for the hill. The British managed to take it and the Germans relentlessly threw counterattack after counterattack. The British were running so low on ammo, they began to take German rifles and ammo off the dead soldiers and use it. And to give you an idea of the amount of artillery used during this battle, the Germans alone had an estimated 50 artillery batteries firing on the hill. That's insane! For five days, there was non-stop bombardment of shells raining down on the soldiers. Now, some historians believe this battle was the reason nobody acted on the gas attack warnings and that the battle drew their attention away. The Huns hoped that the weather conditions would be in their favor on April 19th to release the gas, but the wind failed them and they had to delay it. On the 21st, Falkenhayn was becoming desperate and visibly upset. He strongly reminded Duke Albrecht about the importance of this operation. Falk also believed the gas would be a diversion for them to move more troops from the west to the east. At midnight on the 22nd of April, German infantry were told the attack would definitely take place sometime that afternoon. The soldiers made sure their gas masks were ready to go and cleared the wire making open gaps into no man's land. Once the gas was released, nothing would hold them up. The Stink pioneers removed sandbags from the front of the trenches, preparing the gas for the upcoming release, hoping nothing would hold it back from it moving forward. The men showed physical signs of nerves as they paced back and forth and their hands started to shake, just waiting for the green light, which was first determined to be at 17.45 or 5.45 p.m. Thursday, April 22nd, was a sunny spring day on the salient. Both the grounds and the troops were starting to dry off from the previous rainy days, which normally lifts the spirits, but I don't think spirits were lifted in Flanders. This seemed like a normal day. Pilots from the Royal Flying Corps reported seeing great activity to the rear of the German lines, but to the front lines seemed rather quiet. The Germans relentlessly continued to shell the town of Ypres all afternoon in hopes of creating a distraction, and the French were busy responding to the German shelling with their 75s. just a little after 5 p.m., the devil presented himself in the form of a sinister wind to the backs of the Germans. Ypres was about to become his hell on earth. The signal was given to release the gas. The Germans quickly donned their masks. The pioneers, still shaking with nerves, heart beating with fear, released the valves, and then, evilly merged in the form of a cloud, and began to flow from the cylinders. The 
the sound was described as an unforgettable hiss that came from the valves of the tanks. The wind carried the gas right into the French and British lines. Both Canadian and British observers reported a little after 5 p.m. seeing a cloud of peculiar color moving towards the Allied line. They looked at each other, some with shock and others with horror. They knew what it was. Several observers reported seeing heavy rifle fire coming from the French line, then suddenly the firing stopped at once. The gas had reached them. The Huns released 168 tons of chlorine gas on a 6-kilometer front manned by colonial and territorial French soldiers, regular French soldiers, and British soldiers, which included Canadian, Irish, and Scottish. Right in the direct path of French-Algerian colonial soldiers from the 45th Division was two clouds that merged into one. As the massive cloud reached the men, they yelled in horror and began to claw at their eyes as if they were on fire. Then moments later, they grasped their throats choking in agony as the airway began to seize up. All that was heard was the men yelping, Help me! Next came the gurgling and retching as they began to drown from acid filling the lungs. After a painful struggle to breathe air, only to be de denied a breath, came death. At 5.10 p.m., German artillery delivered a concentrated barrage of shells onto the French lines. Just in case the gas didn't get them, the shells would. Quickly after the bombardment ceased, German infantry got out of the trench and followed behind the last of the cloud. They were afraid of the gas and made sure to stay behind it. Also, when the cloud reached the trenches, many soldiers dropped everything and began to run as fast as they could towards the town of Ypres. And not one observer watching this horror show didn't think any little of them for doing this. As the Germans came up to the enemy front lines, they described seeing men lying on their backs, dead, with their fists still clenched in the air and their faces twisted and discolored, a sign of a painful death. The soldiers' lips and faces had a bluish tint. This happens when the blood becomes starved of oxygen, the skin starts to turn blue. Some German survivors of the war who witnessed the gas attack later confessed they immediately felt remorse after seeing the dead. They said no person should ever die in a horrible way such as this. But it was too late. That door into hell had already been opened and still remains open today. Seeing the dead also instilled fear. Fear because they knew the Allies were going to use it right back at them. Shortly after the gas hit the soldiers, it began to make its way into the town of Ibra, along with a hailstorm of artillery shells. Civilians, including women and children, began to drop and yell in agony, suffering the same fate as the dead soldiers who just died several minutes before from the same clouds. I will say this, though, in regards to the civilians in Ibra. This wasn't the first time the town had been targeted. In fact, it had been pummeled by artillery up to this point. Civilians were told before the gas attack to leave and that it wasn't safe for them to be there. If they had any consideration for their family's safety, then they should have left. Why were some civilians still hanging around, especially women and children? Nothing good could have come from staying around. Ypres offered nothing at that point but death and destruction. 
There was a controversial writer named Philip Gibbs who wrote the book, Now It Can Be Told. He served as one of the five official British reporters during the war. Many have labeled him as a pacifist, which is why his book is controversial. Many people frown upon pacifists. They feel people like Gibbs are unpatriotic or something of the sort. But let's not focus on that. I want to read a paragraph from his book describing what he witnessed on that day. It reads, quote, A few weeks later, the devil came to Ypres. The first sign of his work was when a mass of French soldiers and colored troops and English, Irish, Scottish, and Canadian soldiers came staggering through the Lille and Menin gates with panic in their look and some foul spell upon them. They were gasping for breath, vomiting, falling into unconsciousness, and as they lay, their lungs were struggling desperately against some stifling thing. A whitish cloud crept up to the gates of Ypres with a sweet smell of violets, and women and girls smelled it and then gasped and lurched as they ran and fell. It was after that when shells came in hurricane flights over Ypres, smashing the houses and setting them on fire until they toppled and fell inside themselves. Hundreds of civilians hid in their cellars, and many were buried there. Others crawled into a big drain pipe. There were wounded women and children among them, and a young French interpreter, the Baron de Rosen, who tried to help them, and they stayed there three days and three nights in their vomit and excrement and blood until the bombardment ceased. Ypres was a city of ruin, with a red fire in its heart where the cloth hall and cathedral smoldered below their broken arches and high ribs of masonry that had been their buttresses of towers. End quote. Now, if I'm not mistaken, Gibbs was censored by British intelligence for what he could report and what he couldn't during the war. It wasn't until a couple years after the war he published this book and people heard the truth. Frankly, I don't care if people consider Gibbs a pacifist. Those opinions mean nothing to me. My thoughts are, how could a man who witnessed the gassing of soldiers and civilians, millions dying, including women and children, how can this man be anything but against war? It would be disturbing if he became an advocate for war after witnessing all that he had seen. Within a half hour of the gas being released, the German infantry were already reaching their objectives. Pilkham Ridge had been taken along with the front lines the gas had passed through. By 6 p.m., the Huns started digging in at certain spots. And by them stopping and digging in, this will not play in favor for them. They could have gone the distance to the town of Ypres with no resistance if they wanted to, and which they probably should have. And remember, their manpower had been thinned out to send troops to the east. There wasn't a lot of reserve options at this point. This attack, after all, was to make a major gain, not just to the Allied front line. Falkenhayn also wanted Ypres. By them stopping, this gave the Allies time to regroup and counterattack. Belgian and French soldiers put up a strong fight along the Easter Canal holding off the Huns, but the saving response really came from the Canadians. Brigadier General Turner of the 3rd Canadian Brigade ordered St. Julian to be put in a state of defense. He ordered his reserve battalion, the 14th Canadian Infantry, to assault forward. Canadian field artillery went into action supporting the French, the 16th Canadian, 10th Canadian Infantry, 
2nd Canadian Brigade 7th Battalion had all been ordered to move west to support the assault if needed. The Allies pulled together to counterattack the Germans at Ypres, but even Smith Dorian had said the credit should be given to the Canadian attack which stabilized the situation on April 22nd. The Second Battle of Ypres continued on through the later part of May, and the casualty count is estimated to have been around 125,000. It's also estimated around 6,000 soldiers immediately died just from the first gas attack. And on May 1st, the Germans would release another 60 cylinders just on Hill 60 alone, where the front lines were only 20 yards apart, and they would continue to release more. Fritz Haber's creation of the gas tanks and Falkenhayn's approval in ordering the use of it opened up Pandora's box for unleashing hell onto the battlefield. War is never polite. It's always going to be hell, with or without gas or chemical agents. But using these takes it to another level of evil. The British will be the first to respond to the Germans with their gas attack at the Battle of Lu, But I'm going to cover that in a later episode. And gas will be a weapon used throughout the rest of the war and soldiers will absolutely fear it. The first mask used by the Allies was just a piece of cloth or even a sock, which they were told to urinate on and that it would filter out the chlorine. Then a padding cloth would be developed along with a hypo, which was basically a hooded cloth that covered the head. And shortly after, an actual mask like the pea helmet, and they continued to develop into masks with respirators. Artillery shells and mortars filled with gas agents would eventually come around as a means to deploying the gas combined with an explosive kill range. Mad scientists went to work to develop more lethal types of gas. The next in line was phosgene gas, first used December of 1915 against the British at Ypres. Phosgene kills by asphyxiation, the smell had been described as moldy hay, and it's six times more lethal than chlorine gas. It's estimated that 85% of all gas-related deaths in World War I came from phosgene gas. Soldiers' lungs, lungs would fill over a two-day period and they would slowly drown. Next came mustard gas, first used in 1917, again by the Germans against the British, and again at Ypres. The Germans fired 50,000 mustard gas shells on the night of July 12th. Thousands of casualties was the result. It reacts quickly with water to form hydrochloric acid. It would blister the lungs and throat causing suffocation. It can also be absorbed through the skin and can also cause a delayed blindness. It's called mustard gas because impure forms of this gas is said to smell like mustard. Gas, chemical, and biological agents are still being developed and used today. And sadly, it's often used on innocent civilians. Just ask Syria. John McRae wrote in Flanders Fields on May 3, 1915, after attending makeshift burials for close friends and soldiers who died as a result of the Second Battle of Ypres up to that point. McRae died of pneumonia on January 28, 1918, while still commanding a Canadian hospital in Boulogne-sur-Mer. John McRae was buried the following day at the Commonwealth War Graves in Wemeru, France. All right, folks, I'm going to start wrapping this episode up right here. On the next episode, I'm going back to the Dardanelles to talk about the landing of troops at Gallipoli. There's still so much to cover just for April and May of 1915. Then we move into summer and then fall. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you for your continued support of the show. Please follow me on, on social media at OTTGW Podcast and on my Facebook page, Over the Top, A Great War Podcast. You can email me at OTTGWPodcast at gmail.com. Until the next episode, take care, everyone. Take care.